Heavenly Father, we come now to Your Word, which You breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in the way of righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. We are looking at the last words of the Apostle Paul, and we come this morning to chapter 2 and verse 14 uh, through to verse 21. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Well, so far, may God add His blessing to the reading of His holy and inerrant words. Now, uh, this text now seems wonderfully appropriate because Neil Stewart is here. And in a sense, the Apostle Paul is charging Timothy with a task to do and a faith to defend. My dear friend Steve Lawson, and you know him well, he's been here almost every summer for the summer lectures, and uh, if he wasn't a Baptist, you might even have called him here. <laughs> but he's a dear friend of mine, and uh, he's written a book on preaching, and he very kindly dedicated the book to me, uh, which humbled me no end. And in the introduction section, he says, in every generation, the church of Jesus Christ rises or falls with its pulpit. This statement meets few exceptions. No church, no denomination, no movement rises any higher than its proclamation of the Word of God. The importance of preaching 
and evangelism of the lost cannot be overstated. This is Paul's last letter. He knows full well that Emperor Nero is going to take his head off. Onesephorus has come to meet him. He had difficulty finding him. And now he's being sent back with this letter. Paul will never see Onesephorus again, nor will he see Timothy, whom he wants to come from Ephesus to Rome, but I don't think that ever took place. I think within weeks and possibly a month or two of writing this letter, Paul was dead. And when you know that you're going to die, it concentrates the mind wonderfully, to quote someone. And Paul's chief concern for the church in Ephesus is preaching and teaching. You cannot read this epistle without drawing that conclusion. In chapter 1, he has exhorted Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. In chapter 2, in verses 1 through 13, he tells Timothy that he's entrusted the gospel, that he is to entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Four generations of people. And now he tells Timothy what they need. And what they need more than anything else. Now there's a negative and a positive here. You know there are preachers and all they do is preach the positive things because they want to tickle your fancy. But the Bible has negative things to say too. And you see them there, one in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. And then in verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. And next week in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. There are two verbs here. Remind them. Who are the them? And since Paul's concern is that Timothy entrust others, faithful men who will teach others also, he's talking to preachers and teachers. Remind them. And what is Timothy to remind them about? To charge them, and isn't that a isn't that a solemn word? To charge them before God. This word charge is associated with the idea of giving testimony in a court of law. Charge them before God. This is, this is a duty that they have before God. This is not just Paul's idea or Timothy's idea. It is God's. And what are they to charge them with? Not to quarrel about words. Now, that's a strange idea, isn't it? 
not to quarrel about words. Words are important. Bible words are important. We live in an age, a postmodern world, where words, to quote T.S. Eliot, words slip and slide. But we still consult a dictionary. Maybe it's an online dictionary, but we still consult it for the meaning of words. Every time Bart Swaim writes in the Wall Street Journal, there's always a word that I don't know. And I have to look it up. Take, for example, the word propitiation. In the first half of the 20th century, there was a translation of the Bible known as the RSV. It was more popular in Britain, I think, than here. The Revised Standard Version. It was the standard Bible for a lot of people, including evangelicals. And behind the translation of the RSV was a New Testament scholar from Cambridge, a man by the name of C.H. Dodd. And he didn't like the word propitiation because the word propitiation is associated with appeasing the wrath of God. That what Jesus achieved on the cross was that he dealt with the wrath of God against sin. C.H. Dodd didn't believe in the wrath of God. He said that wrath was impersonal. It was just a negative force in the universe. But God himself had no wrath. So the word propitiation was translated expiation. We don't have the RSV in this church. If you have one, take it home, put it somewhere decent, don't destroy it. You should never destroy a Bible. But put it in a cupboard somewhere and, and buy an ESV. Because the word propitiation occurs in it. Words are important. Not to quarrel, not to quarrel about words. Now the word quarrel is actually two words stuck together. It's the word logos for word and the word for war. War words. We've met these people who argue and argue and argue, and they're not interested in the argument, nor are they interested in anything but the sound of their own voice. All they're interest, interested in is that they're going to win this argument, whatever it's about. Quarreling about words. People who think themselves clever. There's a wonderful story of Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til was the professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And uh, he is uh, Dr. Gabe Fluter's hero. And one day in class, and I've been a professor for 40 years, so I, I know all about this, a, a student asked a question, and it went on and on and on. And eventually, Cornelius Van Til took everything off the desk that was before him, and he lay down on it, and he pretended to sleep. <laughs> because this student wasn't interested in an answer. He was only interested that other students knew how clever he was. Not to quarrel about words. 
Notice in verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Talk, literally, talk that has no value. And he gives an example of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, we know absolutely nothing about Philetus, but Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy, and Paul says that he is to be handed over to Satan, which is a euphemism for church discipline. They've been teaching that the resurrection has already happened. They'd heard Paul saying something like that we've, if, we, if, we, if, we, uh, if we are believers, we've been raised with Christ spiritually. And they absolutized that to the extent that they were denying a future bodily resurrection. They had swerved from the truth and Paul says they were upsetting the faith of some. It could happen in just one generation. Had you called somebody who was simply quarrelsome about words? You've called this wonderful friend of mine. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are in good hands. But you know where this trouble starts? It starts in the church. Paul isn't talking about people outside the church. He's not talking about Emperor Nero or, the, or what he's reading in his newspaper about what's happening in Rome. He's talking about what's happening in the church in Ephesus. And trouble has arisen. And there are times when I speak to you, officers, especially elders, there are times when there's a, hymene, there's a Philetus and a Hymenaeus, and they have to be dealt with. Otherwise, it'll spread like gangrene. Well, that's the negative. There's a positive. In verse 15, this wonderful, wonderful text. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is a preacher's text. This is our call. This is what God wants of preachers. So, I'm going to speak to you, Neil. There's first of all the manner of what he does. Present himself to God as one approved. Who do I answer to? Jimmy Holland, Chairman of Administration Committee. Lanny Lambert, the clerk. The session, 48 elders, sitting elders. My presbytery. My colleagues in ministry. Yes, but I am answerable to one who is far, far greater, and that is God Himself. A preacher's call comes from God. A preacher's gifts come from God. A preacher is answerable to God. He must remember that every 
single time he enters into the pulpit or stands before a lectern. A conviction that one's conscience is answerable not to men, but to God. There's the method of what he does. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. It's why we send our interns to seminary, so that they can learn rightly to handle the word of truth. They have to learn Hebrew and Greek. And for many, it's a, it's a hard struggle, and most of them, the vast majority of them, do not emerge from seminary being able to read the Hebrew Bible from the pulpit like Ralph Davis did. But they have the tools. They have books. They can get to the meaning of the Word and the right interpretation of the Word. Now, rightly handling. The Greek is orthotomeo, and, and you can hear the word ortho, orthodox, orthodontist. What does an orthodontist do? He makes your teeth straight. John Chrysostom in the fourth century thought this word meant to plow a straight furrow. Well, I can, I can identify with that. I remember competitions uh, in, in the farming community where I grew up where there were, you, you had a horse and, and, and a plow, and you would have to plow maybe five, six yards, 50 yards long, five or six yards wide, and then they would be judged according to the straightness of those furrows. You had more entertaining things when you were young, but that's what entertained me. How many of you know the Seaboard Road, built on the old Georgetown and Lane railbed, and the stretch from Lane to Andrews is 20 miles long, as you, if you're going to Georgetown, from Lane to Andrews there's a stretch 20 miles long that's absolutely dead straight, because it's built on the old railway line. Thank you, David. <laughs> Preachers and teachers must not deviate from the truth. They will face seductive influences to tone down their message and avoid certain hard truths to compromise here and there, or, or just be silent and say nothing. And the trouble will start in the church with the Hymenaeus and the Philetus. Churches are sidelining preaching. Al Muller writes that many congregations are caught in a frantic quest for significance in worship. Churches produce surveys to measure expectations for the worship service. Would you like more music? What kind? How about drama? Is our preacher sufficiently 
creative. None of those questions are important. He must plow a straight furrow through the Word of God. There's the matter of what he does. And he, notice, notice Paul talks about the Word of truth. And he may be narrowing that to the gospel, or he may be thinking about the whole Bible, or he may be thinking about both. It's the Word of God. Notice the confidence that he has, that God's foundation stands, God's firm foundation stands. There may be trouble. Hymenaeus and Philetus may come in and, and take away a hundred people. It happens. They may even be successful in some churches, and the churches will just decline and, and eventually close. It may happen. But God's foundation is firm. The gospel is firm. His word is firm. False teachers may come and go. But God's foundation stands firm. And it bears a seal. You know, the seal is a piece of wax and a ring, and you, you put, stick the ring in it, and, and, and it may have a word or, in, or some initials, and it's proof of identity and ownership. The gospel is in God's hands. The gospel is in God's hands. And then he quotes from number 16. And uh, Ken Wingate is leading a Bible study uh, on Thursday morning on the book of Numbers. And there are two quotations here from the book of Numbers. Paul is dying, and the book that's in his head is Numbers. The Lord knows those who are His. He's able to discern those who are His. There may be a Hymenaeus and there may be a Philetus, but God knows who His people are. Let all who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It's in the context of Korah's rebellion. It wasn't Moses or Aaron that kept everything going. It was God. And God knows how to tell those who are His from those who are not. And it's a charge of the vital importance of teaching and preaching that discriminates between the true and the false. And then in the imagery, we, we don't have time to look at it now, between vessels that are honorable and vessels, vessels that are dishonorable. And this is the charge that God gives to Timothy and to other teachers. It's a charge to you, elders. Now, let me close. There's a church of the broad way. And it makes light of preaching and teaching. It accommodates to the cultural mores of the day. It's more concerned about making church look like a club. Its teachers know little, they never study, they never read. 
It's about skinny jeans and not much more. It's the church of the Broadway. And then there's the church of the narrow way that holds fast to the Word of God, that it believes that the Word of God is from God and preaches it all. Truth and error discriminates saint from sinner, gospel from idolatry. And may God preserve that testimony in this church. I'll say it again. It's not 228 years of past history that ensures that. It's elders who are walking with God day by day, waiting upon Him, trusting His Word, committed to the Scriptures and the truths that we confess. That's the charge that Paul is giving to the church in Ephesus and to this church. And may God help us. Father, we thank You. Thank You for this solemn charge that You give to us. Give us grace to heed it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.